pilot's plain tales, the sovereign of the skies. In the United States, there lives a gentleman called William Batsall, perhaps in Walt Hill, Nebraska, not far from Sioux City. He used to own a little Piper Super Cup, registration November 90943. I wonder if he ever understood the significance of the registration number that his aircraft held. Most of us in the aviation community have heard of Captain Sullenberger, who, with calm skill, ditched his Airbus A320 into the Hudson River, saving the lives of all on board. I wonder when Sully was a young boy, he ever picked up a life magazine, perhaps while waiting to see his dentist, and leafed through the pictures of another captain who had just set a standard for exceptional airmanship that Sully was destined to repeat. I love the puzzle pieces that, unknown to us, join lives in so many ways. Back in 1956, the registration number 90943 was held by a rather more majestic aircraft than the Little Piper Cub, and the story that Life magazine had just published in 1956 was of an event that foreshadowed Sully's future. The number 90943 used to mark the fuselage of the Sovereign of the Skies, a royal name for a grand aircraft, a Pan-American World Airways Stratoclipper. More properly named the Strato Cruiser, the Boeing 337 was a double-decked, prop-driven airliner of luxurious proportions. It was powered by four Pratt & Whitney Wasp Major radial piston engines, each with 28 cylinders in four rows, which led to its nickname, the Corn Cop. I hate to think of the complexity of a machine like that, those thousands of moving parts, every one of which must maintain its synchronous efficiency to keep running well. It was, however, one of the last generation of large piston aero engines to be used before the world turned to jet power. The Sovereign of the Skies was part of Pan Am's round-the-world service, and on that day's leg, the flight number six was to cover the ocean between Honolulu and San Francisco and would take nearly nine hours, although it carried fuel for over twelve. In the main cabin, ensuring the comfort of their passengers, a mixture of tourists, diplomats, servicemen and businessmen, the three stewardesses began serving food and drinks. Og left the aircraft in the hands of his capable first officer whilst he stretched his legs and chatted to his passengers. The flight was going well, and the navigator estimated that they would reach the midpoint around 01.30 in the morning. Pat, Cathy and Mary had settled their contented passengers into the curtained sleeping berths, and Captain Og was back on the flight deck, working with the navigator, when the aircraft unexpectedly lurched. The first officer levelled the wings and called for more power as the aircraft started to vibrate violently. Og slid back into his seat 
and then noted the tachometer for the number one engine was showing an increase in revs. Both pilots diagnosed an overspeed caused by a runaway prop, possibly a failure of the constant speed unit. Hacker reached up and attempted to feather the propeller blades to turn them into line with the oncoming air, but they didn't respond. The freewheeling prop continued to overspeed the engine. The aircraft slewed and the number one taco was off the clock. Over the deafening noise, Og shouted to his engineer, Freeze it! Freeze it! Garcia shut the oil supply to the engine. With the propeller winding the engine to destruction, the only option was to remove the lubricant and seize the engine or the motor would disintegrate. The next two minutes took forever as the oil supply petered out, but then with a loud thud, the engine stopped dead in its tracks. The force of the stop snapped the propeller gearing, so it now span freely in the airflow on its shaft like some manic windmill. The crew brought the power up on the remaining engines and they started to assess the situation. They began their calculations, but as they were right on top of the equal time point between Honolulu and San Francisco, they didn't think that they could make either airfield. As they considered their options, the aircraft made the decision for them. With something akin to disbelief, they watched their number four engine start to fail. The engine began to fade, and even with full throttle, it was only producing partial power. It began to backfire, and eventually Og was forced to order it shut down and the prop feathered. Now their calculations were irrelevant. They were going to ditch. Back in the cabin, Pat got her crew to quietly wake those passengers still asleep, before Og came through on the PA. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to wake you, but we have a real emergency. One of our engines is giving us some difficulty. Just in case we have to ditch the plane, please put on your life jackets, take your seats and fasten your seatbelts. The passengers woke from their dreams to find themselves in a nightmare, one that was going to last nearly five hours. It had been a quiet night at Ocean Station November, lying as it did in the midpoint of the transoceanic routes. The Coast Guard ship Train was on station, making its regular weather reports, and the crew were mainly asleep. That was about to change. The Oasco-class cutter had been built for the war, but didn't see action. Since then it had been stripped of much of its armament and served as a weather ship and search and rescue vessel. That night, the radio room received a call from Captain Og warning them of his impending ditching, and Captain Earl was woken. Soon he had his crew scrambling from their bunks. Pontchartrain's train's radar soon found the sovereign of the skies a mere 38 miles away, and they gave a crew a heading to fly to bring them overhead. Down to only a couple of thousand feet, the Strada Clipper struggled on, 
but soon they saw star shells from the ship and the string of floating electric lights they had laid out over the ocean to indicate the best landing direction. Olgan, the cutter's captain, chatted on the radio. Still with a reasonable fuel load, Ogden's crew had decided it would be best to burn off most of that fuel overhead the cutter whilst waiting for the sun to rise. That would make their ditching efforts and rescue much easier. The next few hours were spent in stressed inactivity. Captains Og and Earl calmly talked over the options, and when Earl mentioned that the aircraft carrier USS Bennington was steaming to the scene, he suggested that Og might land on the deck. Og, a tall and normally reticent man, laughed and declined, but the atmosphere between them was both professional and warm. In the cabin, the crew moved amongst the passengers, doing their best to take their minds off the impending ditching. They quietly shifted everyone forward, knowing that previous ditchings had ripped the tails off aircraft and that the front of the airplane was the safest area. Shoes were removed and sharp objects put aside. The Gordon family, given guidance on how best to hold their small children whilst bracing for the landing. So reassuring were the girls that Dr. Two stretched out and went to sleep. Kathy offered grandmother Frida Dix a magazine. Are you kidding, she laughed. A comfort was the brightly lit hull of the Porsche train below. Frida looked down and said quietly to herself, God bless them, they're down there. Finally, with the dawn bringing light, and everyone's valuables tucked safely into plastic bags, they were all ready. The sun rose warm and brilliant over a smooth blue-green sea. The swell was three to four feet, with five hundred feet in between. Olg and his crew practised their actions for the landing, and then spoke to the passengers. The conditions below are ideal, he said. The water temperature is 74 degrees and the waves only a matter of inches high. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. Things couldn't be better for us. I'll soon give you a 10 minute warning. Then one minute before we touch down, I'll tell you, this is it. Do as the stewardesses tell you, please. Below them... The Pochard train had pulled in the string of lights and now laid a slick of firefighting foam from the hoses onto the surface of the water to show the best landing direction and suppress any possible fuel fires. Og called ten minutes and the conversations in the aircraft stopped. Lips moved in prayer. Garcia flooded the fuel tanks with CO2 to dampen any fires. With their children between their legs, the Gordons bent forward whilst the stewardesses took their stations near the exits that they must open if things went well. As the captain called, This is it! The second officer came out of the cockpit to his station and prepared to open the main door. At ninety knots, Og lined the big aircraft up with the foam strip. Apart from a little crying from the children and the roar of the remaining two engines, all was quiet. Nobody could hear anything from the cargo hold, where two dogs, a parakeet and three thousand canaries, waited, unaware of their impending doom.
They were a handful of feet above the water when Ogd pulled back on the throttles and let the aircraft settle. She ran smoothly for a moment, but then, as the thin aluminium of the belly gave way, there was a sudden shock of deceleration, the noise of crumpling metal and the sound of water rushing in. The left wing was grabbed by the sea, and the aircraft spun around, tearing the tail section off. The crew were suddenly on their feet, opening exits, and the cockpit door flew open whilst the pilots rushed out to assist. Brown, the second officer, opened his door and thrust a life raft out, inflating it. As it blossomed, it jammed in the exit, but with a heave he freed it and began to load the passengers. As they entered the raft, they looked up to see the Ponchard train charging towards them at full speed, spray climbing from its bow. The first officer was directing things on the port side, and he ordered the passengers onto the wing and then into a second raft. The women went first, with the men steadying them. There was no shouting, just urgent, low-voiced instructions. Two men stood calmly on the wing, taking pictures. As was fitting, purser Pat Reynolds and finally Captain Ogg were the last to leave the aircraft. The second officer's raft had become hemmed in between the fuselage and the twisted tail, so they calmly climbed onto the wing dragged the raft over into clear water and re-embarked. The raft with the ladies in was floating low and became partly submerged, but by then the Coast Guard boat had arrived and with calm efficiency they pulled it away from the fast-sinking aircraft before helping the passengers to board. Within minutes they were at the side of the Ponchard train and climbing the ladder to be offered big white blankets and coffee. Suddenly, everything sounded awfully good. When the ship docked at San Francisco, there was a wonderfully warm welcome. Blanche Ogg covered her husband with kisses. The stewardesses left with arms full of flowers, and Mrs. Ruby Dami, met by her husband, was swept off her feet and carried the length of the pier as she gently wept onto his shoulder. In the post-crash analysis, it was decided that the likely overspeed of the number one engine was caused by a failure of the governor pitot valve, which misdirected the oil that allowed control of the propeller pitch. This would also have prevented feathering. The number four engine fault was unconnected and was likely due to an impeller drive failure. Having concluded their investigation, the Board of Inquiry added... The board believes that this report would be incomplete without a word of praise concerning the handling of this emergency by all the personnel involved. The board highly commends the crew members for their ability in recognizing the malfunctions and taking correct emergency actions consistent with all known procedures. Their common efficient control of the situation averted what could have been a major disaster. All on the aircraft had survived the ditching. Indeed, there were only a few minor injuries. Captain Ogg remained with the airline until his retirement in 1971. However, in a moment of reflection, he mentioned to his wife that his only real regret was to have lost all the animals in the hold.